morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning session, the Ask the Expert session. Uh, today we have Dr. Schreiber back, uh, and it's great to have John back with his wisdom and uh, update on coronavirus and where we are in uh, the pandemic. I think he'll give you some sobering facts, but also some hope in how we will be moving forward over the next two to three months. And uh, we will mix this one with a really fascinating presentation by Dr. Lucy Marcel, and, and I'll introduce her after Dr. Schreiber. Uh, and again, we'll have our typical questions at the end, uh, hopefully between 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, so you can ask uh, all those questions that you have that you generally uh, bring up to us to try to solve some of the issues that you're dealing with on a daily basis in your, in your practices. Uh, in the inpatient units uh, or uh, simply in the community, as many of you actually work in the community. So I think this will be a very interesting presentation. It's a combination. We try to do this. And I, I, I do want to ask uh, somebody to come up here to the podium just to, in one second. Uh, Liz, if you want to come up here. Um, and, uh, you, you know, there's, a, there's always someone who puts these things uh, together. And, uh, and uh, you know, she's always hiding behind the, the camera, but Liz is responsible to make making sure that that you know these Friday mornings uh, uh, actually happen. And so, please send her an email and thank her uh, because really, it's uh, she's the brain trust behind this, and it's been uh, just an amazing time. So thank you for for yeah. what what you do. Just wanted to make sure you you saw who was here behind the cameras doing the work uh, in, in so many ways. So thank you for, for doing what you thank do. You. Um, she didn't know I was doing that, so she's probably mad at me now, but that's okay. <laughs> we, we can certainly do that. Uh, John, I don't know if you can hear me, but I'm going to pass it on to you to give the update, and then we'll keep moving to Dr. Marcel right after that. But I'll introduce her uh, after John Schreiber's presentation. John, take it on. Thank you, Juan. I just want to check that everyone can hear me okay. Um, coming remote today. Can you hear okay, Juan? John, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're all good. Right. We're good? Go all right. Thank you, Juan. And again, um, I couldn't wholeheartedly agree more. Uh, Liz Anderson is the foundation behind why these talks look so smooth. So again, thanks to Liz for all her help. Uh, next slide, please. So she's going to advance the slides today, and um, we're going to give you an update. Now, this is my theme of the day. It's probably not what you want to hear. Uh, but, uh, you can go ahead. Uh, but fasten your seatbelts. Um, we are in for a rough few months. I, I wish I could wave one and tell you it wasn't true, but it is true. That doesn't mean we can't manage it and we will manage it together as a community, uh, but we're in for a tough few months. Next. So Connecticut uh, has a resurgence in progress. I've been sort of hinting at this over the last few weeks. It's pretty obvious now we're hundreds of cases a day in the state now, uh, over 400, maybe 500 a day. Uh, it's not where we wanna be. It is, uh, by the way, going to get worse because these data, because of the incubation period of two weeks, these data are two weeks old. So that's gonna get higher. And I think most of us feel it's probably gonna be up to a thousand cases a day at peak for the second resurgence. And that mandates that our vigilance um, continue, although I think there's a, a little bit of exhaustion in the community with this. Uh, it is going to be in our interest to maintain vigilance so we don't have to shut down again. And if we do, I think it's possible for us to cook along a bit with a lot of things open still, but it's gonna require cooperation and vigilance. Next, please. And you can see on the hospitalizations, they're up through a lot of the state. Uh, this has changed, this is only a day old, it's already changed more. 
there's a lot of hospitalizations again for COVID, particularly New Haven County, Hartford, Fairfield, New London areas where we knew that it would happen again. So, but it is happening. The hospitals are not overwhelmed yet, but they're busy and uh, it's gonna get busier. Next. And travel for the holidays. Um, each one of us has tough personal decisions to make, whether it's loved ones or funerals or you name it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you travel, uh, travel very cautiously, try to drive, don't go into restrooms, do all the things that you know you need to do to be safe. If you fly, there are all sorts of ways to try to stay safe, but best will be to stick with immediate members of your household for the holidays. Uh, again, I wish I could tell you different, but this is the reality. And I think next holiday season, we won't have to do this. This will be in the rearview mirror. But this holiday season with a COVID peaking across the entire United States again, it's not gonna be a great time to travel. Uh, and most of, the, most of the new cases or many of the new cases are now in households for just this kind of thing, family gatherings. So it's going to be in our interest to probably not travel for the holidays. Next. Um, the United States is in an uncontrolled increase in new cases. Uh, I, I still shake my head when I hear people on the news say otherwise, but I believe yesterday was 76,000 new cases. So we'll be at 100,000 new cases shortly, as Dr. Fauci predicted, uh, in the absence of some more coherent, focused national approach. A lot of these new cases are driven by the Midwest now, and uh, some of the Midwest states are absolutely overwhelmed with COVID. It's uh, unbelievable. And I'll show you some of those data in a second. So we're pretty close to hitting our biggest peak. Um, and we'll probably exceed that. Uh, again, my bet will be we'll be at 100,000 cases um, a day shortly. And um, there are things we can do to mitigate this, and we'll talk about that next. The deaths nationally are hovering about 1,000 a day. Um, this tends to lag the peak new cases. It's going to go up, but I'm optimistic. I think we handle the disease better now. Um, I think we understand things a little bit better, and I'm optimistic, although there are going to be, sadly, a lot of deaths. I don't think the death rate will be as high as it was in the first peak, which I guess is good news. Next. Now, the worst states with seven-day average reported new cases are here. It's actually already increased. Um, this is a very big deal. North Dakota has over 100 cases, 100 new cases daily per 100,000. It's a very small state population-wise. And their seropositivity in the state is probably in the 20% now. Every hospital bed is filled, and their deaths are going up quite rapidly. It's actually an older state uh, in terms of demographics. South Dakota in the same boat. Um, they're both small states. Now, Wisconsin is not a small state. It has millions of people. They have an uncontrolled outbreak. And we're going to talk about that a little bit um, as we go forth. So this is what's driving the United States new cases. But there's resurgence everywhere. As you saw in New England now, by the way, Connecticut uh, is now in the 11 or 12 mode. So we would be a no travel state for Connecticut. So we're above 10 in Connecticut right now. So, so we have some challenges across the whole country, but the upper Midwest in particular. Next. Now the US death projections are enormous. It's unfathomable, um, but this is real. I mean, it's just the math. We're at over 200,000 now. And the current projection puts us around 400 to 450 deaths by February. 
if we throw up our hands uh, and go to the um, uh, let it happen mode, you're talking 500,000 plus deaths by February. So I think I find this sobering um, and I've, I've mentioned this before and I think sometimes we lose sight of it on our daily news programs, but these are people and every one of them had a family and, and loved ones and it's hundreds of thousands. I mean, this exceeds the death rate in most of our wars. So I, I, uh, I find this very sobering and, and one in which makes me want to redouble my efforts and all of our team's efforts to keep people well so that we can prevent death because that's what physicians and healthcare providers are supposed to do. Next. Now, um, the rapid resurgence is not just in the US and I, I think it's important to get perspective. The EU is in serious trouble. They had it very much under control over the summer, much better than the US. But there's been a rapid resurgence as they relaxed uh, a lot of their um, restrictions and um, Netherlands, you can see 10,000 cases a day. Next, um, please. Belgium is probably the worst in the EU uh, as well and next. And you can see Italy, unfortunately, is uh, at a resurgence where it's worse than it was in March. Now, I think they're handling their death rate much better, but Italy has a lot of cases. Germany is probably the best in the EU, but even they're having a resurgence. So this is all over the world, not just the United States. Next. Now, um, interestingly, the Wall Street Journal had a fascinating article yesterday, day before, showing how the West is challenged. Asia, which is mostly Hong Kong, China, Singapore, Korea, actually have COVID under control and they've reopened their economy quite substantially. And again, they did it right. What they did is initially they whacked it down very hard with everything being frozen. And once they got it down, they ramped up incredibly aggressive testing and contact tracing masks. And there is a cultural difference in a sense of community and perhaps less focus on the individual in those cultures. They've restricted travel enormously. It's difficult to get in and out of Hong Kong and Singapore, et cetera. And so they have reopened and their COVID rates are very low. And um, it's, it shows that there is a way to do this, unfortunately, for us in the United States, the horse is out of the barn and this will not be possible for us now. Next. Now, um, some other um, information for you, probably you don't wanna hear, but it's my job to tell you it was new data. This is brand new data the last couple of weeks. So these guys published in the Virology Journal and they were curious, well, it's getting cold. What's that gonna do to COVID you know, on surfaces? Cause right now they're telling us don't wipe down the cans anymore, it's all okay. But the reality is, as it gets cold, COVID lives longer. So you can see in this figure on stainless steel, for example, at 20 degrees centigrade, which is kind of cool weather um, and not a below room temperature, uh, prolongs the survival of a virus that can replicate. Ditto on plastic polymers, glass, actually paper as well. If it's cold paper, you leave it outside in the winter, it's gonna, the COVID's gonna do fine. Uh, and actually the one that doesn't make much difference is cotton cloth. So your clothes are probably good no matter what the weather. But you can see as it gets colder, we're probably gonna need to be a little careful about surfaces that are outside that are contaminated and, and just watch this carefully. So it's something to think about. It's not cold yet, but it will be. Next. Um, flu versus COVID. Um, 
we get questions every day on this. It's fascinating, but the American Academy came out with this table, which basically just says there's no difference. They both have the same symptoms unless you lose your taste and smell and then it's COVID. So I don't think this added much, but it, it sort of reiterates the issue that in this season, this year, you're not going to know. Uh, and then when in doubt, test. And you will know. And I think that's the way to go. If there's a loss of taste or smell, you know it's COVID. It's flu very rarely does that. And so, uh, but again, I thought this just reiterated that we're probably not going to know based on symptomatology unless there's loss of taste and smell. Next, please. Um, I just want to reiterate this because, I, again, I heard somebody on the news the other day say that masks don't work. It was some lieutenant governor somewhere. And, and um, the data are, that's not correct. They're really good data now. There's several meta-analyses looking at this and masks prevent uh, spread and prevent acquisition of COVID quite well. That's been shown in a number of outbreaks also. Um, and so, but the type of mask is important. I just want to point out, we already know N95s are best, but also surgical masks are quite good. And the hybrid multi-layer masks that a lot of people have and have bought are pretty good. Ditto with the two-layer masks. But the ones that aren't so good are single-layer t-shirt masks, silk masks, and bandanas don't do much of anything. So uh, we're at Connecticut Children's now, for example, if parents come in with bandanas, we're offering them surgical masks because we know that they're not effective. But masks work. The data are great. I can look every patient in the eye and show them the data that masks will prevent them from acquiring it most of the time and prevent them from hurting somebody by infecting them. So a very simple way to be a good community member, both protecting yourself and others. Next. Now their uh, vaccine work is cooking along very nicely. It is the silver lining. Um, there is another, I remember we've been talking about the Moderna vaccine. It's gotten a lot of press. It's an American company, but there's another RNA vaccine that looks quite good. It's the Pfizer vaccine. And actually Pfizer, I believe has now testing this in children up to the age of 12. So it's one of the few vaccines that's being tested in children now. And you can see these are um, participants as 18 to 55 and older, but now they've gotten it down to 12. Um, you can see these are titers after a days after immunization, after one or two doses and various doses you get. It's quite immunogenic. Uh, it's making a lot of neutralizing antibody um, and also works in the elderly, although you can see probably not as well as it does in younger people. So. Very promising data, uh, doesn't show efficacy yet, uh, but it's promising. And I think we're gonna, come this winter or late winter, we're probably gonna have two or three or four vaccines that may be licensed to come maybe February, March. I'm, I'm just broadly predicting that. Next. Now, um, there is another vaccine out of China which uses more traditional methods. You know, the flu vaccine, for example, is grown in eggs and you get whole virus and you kill it and it's inactivated and that's the vaccine or you can grow it in tissue culture as well. There's another vaccine that's recombinant influenza vaccine also. This uses the way we grow flu vaccine. They grow up COVID in bulk culture viral cells <clears throat> They purify it and inactivate the virus, and then they use aluminum hydroxide as an adjuvant, which is what the influenza virus vaccine does. Um, next slide. And this vaccine is quite immunogenic. Um, you can see time post inoculation, and these are seroconversion rates. 100% of the volunteers seroconverted. Um, none of the placebo did, that's on the left. And then a B and D on the right 
uh, show you the amount of um, neutralizing antibody titer. Uh, and this is for elderly, 60 and older, and it's quite good. So I think we'll also have a whole virus vaccine that's very similar to influenza. Now, the worry about this I would have is we don't understand this virus quite yet. And one might worry that there's in the whole virus or the inactivated virus, there could be triggers for in inflammation, uh, particularly in children with MISI. So in terms of could this cause MISI late, we just don't know. So there is some nervousness about a whole virus inactivated vaccine in terms of the immune system being inactivated in ways we don't quite understand yet, but it's a very immunogenic vaccine, it'll probably work. Next. Now I do wanna talk about um, the Great Barrington Declaration, um, the herd immunity declaration. I think this is all over the news and um, I always approach these things, as you know, um, what are the data? So I, I, it's all politicized and everything, but the reality is it's hypothesis. Could we do herd immunity and this would be better than uh, having the shutdowns or having everyone physically distanced and all that stuff that's uh, hurting the economy in their opinion and hurting, which is, and hurting vulnerable in the economy who can't get to work. And I wanna read this to you because I took it very seriously. Then I, I went back and said, okay, can I find data that support this hypothesis? And I'm going to read it because I think all of us as healthcare providers need to be able to look people in the eye and discuss with them why or why not this might work. So they say the great, by the way, I live 10 miles from Great Barrington. So, you know, this is, shall we say, dominant topic here. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. So what they wanna do is those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume normal life. They can wash their hands and stay at home when they're sick, but everything else don't bother doing. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching, extra activity sports should be resumed. Young low-risk adults work normally, don't, don't work from home. Restaurants are open, businesses open, arts, music, sports, cultural activities should all resume. And people who are more at risk may participate if they wish, I guess if they wish to die, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. Now I read this and I think it's, it's, it's um, meant in good faith. I don't think uh, these are very good people. The question is, do the data support this hypothesis? And that's what I'm gonna show you. Next, please. So, the truth is the data do not support this hypothesis, and I'm gonna show you why. This, these are thresholds for herd immunity by pathogen based on the reproductive value. Now, the reproductive value, remember, is how many people get infected by an index case. And SARS, I marked on this graph, is around our, our uh, sub-zero is about two to three people get infected from each index case. Now, measles is the most infectious disease ever known, and that has, um, uh, I think it's 18 is the R value. And it was absolutely impossible to get herd immunity with natural infection because people get sick and there's death and encephalitis and other stuff in children. And so that required immunization to reach herd immunity internationally. And it's breaking down because we've had pockets of epidemics where there's not herd immunity because of immunization follows. SARS falls in the middle. You need around 60% herd immunity with an R value of two to three. This is just math. 
it's not politics or anything else. The math shows you that with an R value of two to three, historically, we know from other pathogens, you're gonna need about 60% of the population to be immune so that you have reached herd immunity threshold and you have less transmission of the disease, okay? That's the math. Next. So, so this was looked at last week in a paper in JAMA where they looked at this math and here's what, here's what you see. So the United States has 330 million people. And even if you lower the fatality rate to 0.5%, we think it's around 1% for COVID. But even if you say it's 0.5, you're gonna to need to infect 200 million people in the United States to reach herd immunity threshold of 60%. And we know at a 0.5% death rate, that's gonna be at least several hundred thousand additional deaths because only 10% of the population has been infected so far. Now, there are other issues. Um, and, and that is, uh, is it possible if it's transient immunity that the herd immunity would be intact over time? Probably not. So they conclude that a vaccine will be required internationally to reach herd immunity and absolutely required in the United States unless we want 198 million people over the next few months to get infected. Now, there are other issues about that I'm going to talk about next. So here's the challenges with the herd immunity strategy. And again, it's just the math of getting to 60%. It's not politics. So you're gonna, you're gonna lose another three or 400,000 people. So probably 500,000 to a million more deaths. If you think about that vast number of people getting infected, even whatever the percent hospitalizations are, which is not trivial, the entire medical system across the country will be overwhelmed for months. It's just not possible to manage that um, uncontrolled epidemic because a lot of people get hospitalized with this disease. There'll be more sustained economic damage uh, compared to mitigation that we're doing now where we try to reopen things slowly and, and uh, fine tune it. If you just let it go, let it rip, um, I believe, and it's certainly true in Iowa, for example, where there are really no restrictions, all the businesses are shut down because nobody wants to go anywhere because they all know they could get sick. So, you know, there's the psychological component that the economy shuts down when everybody gets sick. They're not going to go out and, and go to Target. So I think um, most economists feel that it will be more sustained economic damage with um, let it rip strategy. We have no idea about long-term complications. We know there are individuals who are having long-term neurologic and other complications. We know it infects the brain uh, and particularly uh, the uh, olfactory bulbs. And so we do not understand this. And if we infect 200 million people with it, it is possible there would be a large number of people with long-term complications, which we, we have no idea about. Um, and then how are we gonna protect the vulnerable? Focus, they say focus protection. That means basically everybody over 65 in nursing homes, obese, diabetes, that's about 25, 30 million Americans. How are we gonna protect the vulnerable if all the, the non-vulnerable are infected? And, and so, and, and I'll tell you, I'll show you an example of this in just a minute. It's gonna be very difficult to do that and thus your death rates will go up. So most experts looking at the math, not the politics conclude a vaccine is going to be required to achieve herd immunity. So I, I wanna go through that because all of us should understand this argument because they were not bad people who made the Grant Barrington declaration. I just believe that they did not understand the math. Next. Now here's a great example. So of, of um, basically um, let it rip policy and what happens. 
So the Wisconsin Supreme Court has blocked mass quarantine and business shutdown mandates by the governor. So it's, it's chaotic in Wisconsin. You can see their rates. You know, it's an absolute uncontrolled epidemic. And every mayor is not allowed to have any mask mandate because the Supreme Court outlawed it. Uh, and so here's a typical college town in La Crosse where they have a huge outbreak because all the young people were going out because there's no restrictions. And it spilled right over into nursing homes because those are the same people working in the nursing homes. And we don't have the testing and the, the um, follow-up required of community follow-up uh, to maintain this. And so it, the death rate shot through the roof and they lost dozens of people and it spilled right over the nursing homes and the elderly. So I don't, I don't see how the herd immunity model of focus protection could possibly work if all of the young people who take care of the old people are infected. So and this is playing out in Wisconsin currently. Next. So um, here's where we are. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I hope all of you watched that movie. Um, and if you haven't, you should, because it's actually a pretty good Western. Um, there is a robust resurgence of COVID across the United States. It is big. Um, we are not in control of this pandemic in the United States. I guess it's solace to know that the EU is falling into the same mess, but um, uh, uh, in my opinion, this was probably avoidable. Connecticut is now part of the national resurgence. Uh, we cannot um, let down our guard. In fact, we probably need to ramp up our guard a little bit. We're getting 400 cases a day, maybe more now, and lots of hospitalizations. Uh, I got calls all day yesterday from exposed team members. Um, it's in the community and in families, particularly in gatherings and families. Be cautious. There is fatigue in the community to adhere to public health measures. All of us are tired. Um, really, all of us, healthcare providers, people in the community, everyone. That said, it's just not that hard to maintain physical distance and wear a mask so we can prevent deaths. It's just not that hard. We're going to have to keep doing it. The lack of national strategy and the implementation in some states of the herd immunity model is going to greatly exacerbate the resurgence. It's just the math, um, and I, I can't change the math. It's not politics. Uh, you can't spin this. It will be a lot of cases. However, a variety of vaccines show outstanding preliminary data. Uh, the resurgence, ironically, is making it much easier to attain efficacy data on these vaccines. It's accelerating vaccine development because if you give it to the community and you have horrible community spread, you can tell pretty quickly if the vaccine works. So that's the silver lining. The fact that we're very active in the pandemic right now is going to accelerate our ability to get efficacy data from our vaccines. Once again, thank you uh, for joining me this week, Connecticut and other states. Um, we at Connecticut Children's look forward to partnering with you through this. We are not alone in this and we'll get through. And by next year at this time, this will be in the rearview mirror. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh Greatly appreciate some uh, wonderful, uh, very, uh, very detailed information, and I could not agree with you more about the, the reopening without uh, caution. I think that would be a problem. Uh, the next speaker is uh, Dr. Lucy Marcille, and uh, we're very happy that she was able to participate today. Uh, I'll give you a short uh, introduction. Uh, she is an assistant professor of pediatrics in general pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine. She's also Associate Director for Economic Mobility in the Center for Urban Child and Healthy Family at Boston Medical Center. Dr. Marcille is the uh, co-founder and executive director at Boston Medical Center's Street Creed Prog program, which provides free 
tax and other financial services to families who are eligible to receive the earned income tax and child tax credits. And uh, so she is uh, certainly a, a champion and an advocate for children in, 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 uh, who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Uh, her work focuses on creating innovative solutions to help uh, alleviate the adversity and stress of those living in poverty. Uh, she has been recognized by the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, in uh, the, the Anne E. Dyson Child Advocacy Award, and uh, she's also a TED Fellow. Uh, in her TED talk has reached over 1.3 million viewers. We're really, really honored to have her. I'm so glad that she was able to find time to uh, meet the ask uh, the experts um, and about 160 people that we have at, or around there logged in today. So, Dr. Marcel, thank you again, and uh, I'm going to pass the podium on to you, and then we'll have questions at the end. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm thrilled to be here and um, delighted to listen in to your COVID updates, too. I learned a lot and want to come back next week now. So um, I'm going to be talking to you all this morning about anti-poverty medicine, which is a approach we're trying out and hoping to develop a national movement really um, to integrate financial well-being into the healthcare system. The next slide. I have no financial relationships to disclose or conflicts of interest. Next slide. So I have three objectives that we'll very quickly go through. I want to make sure there's enough time for questions. We're going to identify the pathway and relationship between financial status and health, describe health outcomes associated with financial interventions, and apply the concept of a medical financial partnership, um, hopefully to your own clinical settings and work. Next slide. So to lay the groundwork here, we all need to know that Americans are as a whole financially insecure. You can see, um, depending on how you want to measure it, about half of Americans by different metrics are financially insecure. They don't have um, a month of savings. They feel financially insecure. Their expenses equal or exceed their income. Next slide. It's also really important that we acknowledge that financial inequities are rooted in structural racism um, over hundreds of years starting with slavery, um, each of these um, events or policies that I put here have um, very systematically excluded the Black African-American population from economic opportunities, um, and that um, extends to today. Um, so I won't go into that in more detail, but it's an important piece of the context. Next slide. So, and again, as you can see by the numbers here, this holds up. So both income and asset poverty are racially inequitable in the US. This graph shows income poverty. Uh, what you can see here is that the poverty rate for um, Black, Latinx, American Indian, Alaskan Native populations hover around 25 to 30% over long periods of time, despite those populations, um, in many cases, being a smaller percentage of the population at whole, overall, whereas the poverty rate in the white population is about 10% over time, despite white people being a larger percentage of the population in the US. The other thing I'm not showing here, but it's important to note is asset poverty um, is a concept that just means um, that you don't actually have assets, you don't have wealth. Um, and there are large racial gaps in wealth in the United States as well. On average, the white families have about 10 times as much wealth as Black families in the United States. And especially in certain areas of the country, um, that gap is even larger. So in Boston, where I live, um, the average white family has over $200,000 in wealth, um, whereas the average Black family has about $8 in wealth. Next slide. 
And this income gap does persist by race, even among high earners like physicians. So you can see here, over time, um, white men who are physicians um, make much more than white women, but also um, than black men and black women. Um, so this is a problem. Next slide. All right, so now that we have seen this inequity with income, let's think about how this is um, affecting health. Financial strain, which is a larger term, encompasses poverty, but also people who just are feeling financially stressed, maybe have income variability, they work irregular hours, um, they have sudden loss of income, like with all the layoffs we've seen recently. Um, so financial strain is associated with poor health outcomes. And these are graphs of COVID in Boston. Um, so on the left, you can see that um, this is COVID rates by different neighborhoods in Boston. The darker color, purple, is the highest rate. And that is compared to a map showing median household income. Um, the lowest income levels are the light and dark green. And what you can see by looking at these maps side by side is that there are higher COVID rates in low-income populations in Boston. I'm not showing you a race map uh, of Boston, but um, again, these higher uh, COVID rates, lower incomes also correlate with neighborhoods that are more likely to be Black and Latinx. Next slide. So another way to think about financial strain being associated with poor health outcomes is if you just look at mortality and income. So on the x-axis here, we have household income percentile and the y-axis um, expected age of death for someone who is 40 years old. Um, and you can see that as your household income percentile increases for both men and women, um, your expected age of death increases. Um, so that's an important association. Next slide. This is um, uh, from a paper in Health Affairs uh, from Cincinnati Children's that was published a couple years ago looking at child health data and financial strain. So they looked at inpatient bed days um, per 100,000 children and they stratified it by different types of um, infections or reasons for being hospitalized illnesses. So you look on the y-axis and you can see respiratory infections, injury, asthma, epilepsy, um, with the red bars being those children who are at the highest level of poverty, the blue bars being lowest. And you can see that across a variety of conditions, um, children who are living in poverty spent more days inpatient, uh, which of course has implications both in terms of their overall health, but their families' uh, well-being, um, since we all know hospitalization has a lot of negative externalities. Next slide. And this is from a paper that we recently published um, that the overall point here really is that there are significant mental health impacts of financial strain as well as the physical health impacts we just reviewed. Um, and this is from a qualitative study we did at Boston Medical Center uh, where women who identified as being financially strained talked about their perceptions of how it was impacting them and their family. The two important takeaways here are both that, of course, they describe an immediate uh, direct effect of financial strain, leading to self-blame, leading to poor mental health outcomes, including, including suicidality. Um, however, you can also see that parenting modifications were an important side pathway. Um, parents have really eloquent ways of describing their vision and their dreams for how they wanted to parent well. Um, and I would say just like any of you who have children, they had ideas about how to enrich their children's life, how to discipline them, how to provide them with a lot of loving attention. 
but they also were very clear that they were not living up to their own standards and that it was because they were financially stressed. I had one mom describe to me um, sitting in the room across from her infant twins. She'd fed them, they were safe, but she couldn't bring herself to read to them or interact with them because she was so worried about her rent and was just sitting there thinking about how am I going to make sure we have a roof over our head. And she felt so guilty about not interacting with those twins. And so that, those parenting modifications led to more self-blame for most of these women and also negative mental health effects. So I think this is a really critical um, pathway that when we think about the well-being of children and families, especially currently. Next slide. So the good news is that we do have different anti-poverty tools in the United States. Uh, this graph really focuses on um, child poverty and the percentage decrease we can expect based on current policies. These are data from the um, census. And um, you can see here, interestingly, that the most powerful anti-poverty tool we have in the United States is a tax, tax credits, specifically the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. Tax credits function as cash transfer programs in the United States. So if you qualify for them, if they're refundable, meaning if you um, do not owe as many taxes as credits um, that you have, then you will get that cash back. Um, so that is decreasing child poverty in the United States by a much higher percentage than food stamps, housing subsidies, or welfare checks, which I think are um, tools that we hear about more commonly, um, especially in the popular media. Next slide. So why does this matter? It matters because cash um, is associated with improved health outcomes. And this is a slide from Children's Health Watch, which I work closely with. Um, and they have done a lot of important work around um, data with the earned income tax credit and work to actually increase the earned income tax credit in Massachusetts. Um, many states do have um, tax state earned income tax credits that are a certain percentage of the federal credit. In Massachusetts, it's right now, it's about 30% um, with the goal of getting to 50%. So they summarize nicely here. Um, there are many research studies and many more that I have time to go over today, but I'm happy to go into more detail if anyone has questions about this, but that have shown that there's an association between getting a cash transfer, getting the EITC, having higher birth weights. Um, and some of the state data have also shown that there is um, a stepwise relationship in terms of if you get more EITC, there's even more improvement in birth weight. Um, EITC is also associated with lower medical costs, um, healthier children by different measures, including um, their social emotional development and school performance. Um, there have been studies that have found lower rates of abusive head trauma in infants when families get uh, the EITC, and as well as lower rates of suicidality and suicide in adults, um, improved maternal mental health, decreased maternal smoking, um, better nutrition, greater lifetime earnings. So it really is this um, incredible array of effects um, that, that come from families having more cash. Next slide. And so you might wonder how this happens. I often have people ask me if people get the EITC and then they spend more money at the doctor. You know, do they come in for more visits? Do they buy more prescriptions? Um, and that is probably one of the pathways. There are some data that show that pregnant women specifically who get the EITC um, engage in prenatal care sooner and have more visits and higher quality visits. We think that may be because they're less likely 
um, to be on Medicaid um, and that it can be difficult sometimes to find uh, prenatal care if you are on Medicaid, depending on where you live. Um, but many of the effects are actually not through direct engagement with the healthcare system, but rather through um, two different mechanisms that this diagram here shows. This is from a health affairs policy brief. Um, so one is simply, of course, having increased income can uh, directly improve health through um, increased access to material goods, things like you can buy better food, um, and you're less likely to engage in risky behavior. Uh, you are more likely perhaps to be able to pay a copay and engage in medical care. Um, JP Morgan Chase did an interesting study uh, where they looked at people's bank accounts right after they got their tax refunds and found that there was a 60, 60% increase in new medical spending after people got their tax refunds, which implies that people were purposely waiting to get that extra money before they could do medical care that they perceived as being perhaps optional or something that could wait until they had more money. The other way though that um, EITC and other cash transfers improve health, we think, is through reduced stress. And so to hearken back to that pathway I spoke about um, with the moms at BMC, I think it's similar here where um, women and men have more cash, they are able to meet their family's basic needs. Most of what people spend these tax credits on is things like um, their rent, uh, buying supplies of food, getting a car repaired so they can get to work, perhaps repairing their house, repairing their roof, kind of major expenses like that. So with this reduced stress, then people have more mental bandwidth to both engage with their children, to engage in the healthy behaviors that they aspire to um, engage in, but have trouble doing when they're focused on meeting their more immediate needs because of financial stress. And so those different pathways all lead to improved health outcomes that we just spoke about. Next slide. So our summary so far, next slide, is that poverty is pervasive in the United States. It is also racially inequitable. Poverty and financial strain more broadly are associated with poor health outcomes and cash transfers in the form of tax credits are the largest anti-poverty program in the US. They are underutilized and they are associated with improved health outcomes, both directly and through reduced stress. Now, the last thing, I skipped here, but in terms of underutilization, it's really important it comes to why we're thinking about this in the medical field, is that 20% of people who could get these tax credits don't get them. They either don't file their taxes because they're low enough income that they aren't required to, or they're worried the IRS is going to come after them. They don't understand how to file their taxes, or they don't actually claim the tax credit correctly when they file their taxes. Um, interestingly, for-profit tax preparers are not required to have any sort of certification. I could open up my own for-profit tax business tomorrow and just start preparing taxes. No one would ever check that I had taken any sort of exam. But um, what you'll hear about in a minute is that if we offer free tax preparation to families, the IRS actually requires that we pass an IRS exam um, that shows that we know the basics of tax preparation. So that's relevant because what happens is a lot of for-profit tax preparers prepare returns that have errors in them. And so that leads to people not claiming these credits and uh, the credits being underutilized. And then people who do claim the credits on average um, lose about $400 of the value of the credit um, to fees and hidden costs from the for-profit tax preparers, which um, 
further decreases the impact that they have for families. So next slide. All right, so in response to this, uh, myself and another physician uh, a few years ago in 2016 started a program called Street Cred at Boston Medical Center. Uh, this is a picture of it. It's in the lobby of our pediatric clinic. Um, and it's pretty simple, really. We just run one of these IRS um, approved free tax filing sites. It's called a VITA site and have trained certified volunteers who prepare taxes. We have site coordinators who are pictured here who um, have a higher level of training, are paid and provide supervision and support to the volunteers. Um, and we have the medical team um, both advertise the service and recommend it as a part of the social needs screening process um, so that there is retained advantage of that trust um, that families have with their medical providers and make them more likely to file or to take advantage of um, these types of services. And we found in the first couple of years that we did this service, 20% of the families we were serving were not filing taxes in the prior year. So we, that was a self-reported piece of data, but really important, I think, um, that we were capturing people who were not um, filing their taxes previously. Um, so next. So since we started um, both at BMC and at affiliated sites, we've served almost 4,000 families next and returned $7.6 million. So that's part of what's really exciting about these credits. It's, it's pretty easy to return a lot of money to people. On average, this past year, families that we served at BMC got $3,300 back, um, which is transformational for especially low-income families. Next slide. Ooh, this slide, unfortunately, does not seem to be showing up well. Um, so we'll skip it. It's supposed to be showing you that in Boston, the, um, the people we've served through street cred live in the same areas as high COVID rates, and that they also live in areas um, that have high eligibility rates for EITC and child tax credit. So uh, we're reaching our target population. Next slide. We know though that tax preparation alone is not enough. It is a great infusion of cash. Uh, people aspire to save it. They usually have to spend it on immediate needs like I mentioned before. And so by you know, three to six months into the year, they spent the money and are waiting on that tax credit next year. So we know we need to go deeper and provide other supports. And in my role with the Center for the Urban Child and Healthy Family, um, I'm a part of a team that is innovating what we're calling the pediatric practice of the future. This diagram here shows you the model for that practice. So the goal is whole family development. And we developed this model um, using a year of human-centered design work with families from our clinic. And families identified these four components as being what they want their healthcare providers to offer them. So of course they want their children's physical well-being to be a priority, but they also wanted us to pay more attention to their emotional and spiritual well-being. They also wanted more support around their parenting um, and parent-child didactic interactions. And then finally, they said very clearly to us that they wanted more support with their economic well-being. So as a part of that, we have recently hired a financial coach um, who is a part of this clinical practice innovation team who meets with families during clinic visits, um, just like any other member of the team as a part of this um, innovation team. There is a social worker and a community health worker who all just routinely meet with families, we are taking more of a strengths-based approach. So instead of saying, oh, you only meet with a social worker if a problem arises, we have them meet with all these people to set goals, 
um, and work towards goals with this team. Um, in between visits, the financial coach has longer virtual sessions with families to actually dig into their budget, their finances, what are their financial goals, um, what is their credit score, how can we help them increase their credit score. So we just started this. I don't have a lot of data yet on how it's going to work, but um, there's a few examples nationally that um, indicate this could be a successful approach. The other thing we're doing is helping families open 529 college savings accounts in Massachusetts. If you open one of these accounts in the first year of your child's life, you get $50 from the state, which is great. The reason we're interested in these types of accounts specifically is that they have been associated, having these accounts has been associated with an increased likelihood of attending college and graduating from college, regardless of how much money is in the account. Um, there's an Oklahoma randomized study that shows if the state is putting large amounts of cash in these accounts, $1,000, um, that at age four, there's a statistically significant improvement in their ages and stages social emotional um, scores without doing anything else, just putting the cash in the account at birth. And then um, we think that that is happening because again, of kind of changing parenting mindset, perhaps decreasing stress. So we're focusing on these accounts as a way to do that. So I'm sorry, um, hopefully I'm still there. Sorry, someone's just trying to call me. Um, so um, the, the last thing I'll say about these accounts is simply that they are um, a really good way to shelter savings from the benefits cliff. So if you save in a savings account, you're going to lose access to things like SNAP. But if you save in one of these accounts, you don't lose access to that. Next slide. All right. And the last point I have here is simply that, you know, we started Street Credit BMC. We want this to spread across the country. We want it to be a national model. Um, we do that. We have the Medical Tax Collaborative, which is our technical support arm. So we have this whole um, kind of toolkit, marketing materials, regular calls. We have an interactive online platform. And we have 26 members in 14 states and DC um, who are either actually operating tax sites, which are the green stars, or in the process of setting them up, which is the blue stars. Next slide. So if you're interested in this work, we are always welcoming new members. If you're interested in joining the Medical Tax Collaborative, uh, we also encourage you to advocate uh, with your local, state, and federal stakeholders, talk about the effect of poverty on child health and ways you might be able to intervene. And then we're also always happy to connect with you if you have any other questions for us. Next slide. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and we'd be happy to take questions. Much for a truly outstanding uh, presentation and uh, obviously very provocative and innovative. So congratulations on, on the work that you do. Um, I, I, we have a, a number of questions. We won't, probably won't be able to get through all of them. And uh, I'll begin one for you, Dr. Marcial. So there's a question about, are you partnering with first-time homeowners programs such as housing financial authorities? That's a great question. So we are not currently, but it can be um, a really important way to work with families. Uh, Nationwide Children's in Ohio, it does some important work in this area. There's also, I'd encourage you to look into this program through HUD called Family Self-Sufficiency that allows families and public housing to um, save money in escrow as their income increases uh, through financial coaching and similarly protect that income from uh, the benefits cliff effect. 
Uh, can you uh, talk a bit about co-infection and premature closure of ruling out COVID-based or another on another positive test like strep in a high prevalence time? So can you rule out COVID if you have a positive test for something else? Well, you know, you can't rule it out, but I think it's common sense. If you have a kid with a sore throat and low-grade fever and the rapid strep is positive, you treat that for strep. And um, probably it's not COVID, but we don't know. I mean, there's going to be some co-infections, particularly as community spread grows the likelihood of having COVID is going to go up. So you have to be cautious. I think if they're nonspecific URI symptoms with fever, then as you saw from the slide where flu and COVID virtually have no difference in presentation, probably the better part of valor is going to be to test. But if you come up with specific, a bulging tympanic membrane and a child has been pulling their ear all night and, and they get better in a day of augmentin, it's probably not COVID. So you have to use common sense. Thank you. Um, Dr. Marcial, do we have any morbidity and mortality data for economic recession, uh, recessions? Um, how, would, how would we determine this? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure I can fully answer that question. Uh, I'm happy to look into it a little bit more. I will say that there are some data from the last economic recession on um, child mental health that show that there were significant spikes in uh, mental health problems for children during the recession. Thank you. Uh, John, uh, should we test young infants uh, under the age of nine months if they present with symptoms, fever, URI, diarrhea, and no one is sick at home? Well, it's a great question. Um, I guess I would ask, you know, you need a little bit more data about any sort of COVID exposures. Nobody's sick at home, but they went to um, an indoor gathering with family, but not all of the same household. There's, that's a risk. And so some of it depends on the risk, but, you know, I would test because at age nine months, that URI could be COVID, and, and it's going to be relevant to that family, and testing is readily available at the moment. So there's no reason not to test. Thank you, Dr. Marcial. Uh, a general question for you is, uh, give us your, your sense of the effect of COVID-19 on child poverty in general. Uh, it, it, how bad is it uh, over a 12-month period uh, regarding uh, closures, regarding, uh, you know, businesses going down under, et cetera. What is your sense of how this is going to affect child poverty? Yeah, unfortunately, it's bad. And it really also hinders, even though I just talked about all these ways we're helping families, um, if people don't have jobs, it's much harder to help them, right? These things I'm talking about are relatively small tweaks. And so a lot of what we need is a strong economy and good policies to support families. Um, there are different economic projections. Of course, none of us really know. Some of it depends on what happens this winter. Will there be a stimulus package? Um, but there are projections that show the child poverty rate um, could be the highest it's been in decades. Um, one paper suggested it could reach um, the adjusted child poverty rate. So that takes into account um, things like food stamps. It could reach over 20%. Um, and more recently, it's been closer to like 12-ish percent. Thank you. Uh, John, this is for you. I had another, an older child on the border of COVID or no, or no COVID, emphatic yes to loss of taste and smell, but COVID negative. Should he be retested at some point? What about loss of taste, smell with sinusitis, et cetera? Um, you know, obviously you can use, lose taste and smell with sinusitis, uh, and you can also lose it with some other viral infections. It's just not as common as with COVID. Some answer that question depends on the time period. If lo new loss of taste and smell you could have a negative PCR initially, and maybe a day or so later that would be positive. 
So it's, if, if it's new loss of taste and smell with, a, with an initial negative PCR, it might be worth repeating it. Um, but some of it depends on the timing of that. Thank you. And we have time for a couple more questions uh, uh, from the, one of our pediatricians. Uh, I'll read the statement and either one of you can answer it. Uh, politicians keep speaking of our desire to return to normal. However, one positive uh, from the last seven months is that we have barely seen any traditional infections in children. I think this may be attributed in part to wearing masks, cleaning hands, and social distancing. What might be the health and economic benefits of continuing such precautions in a post-COVID vaccine society? So, uh, Lucy, if you can uh, address this first and then John. Sure, yeah. I mean, I do think that if we can keep children healthier, um, of, you know, avoiding all sorts of infections, um, it certainly helps um, families economically. I have innumerable families um, where pre-pandemic, you know, the kid would get sick with, say, RSV, they'd be hospitalized. The parent would be working in an erratic job, which they didn't really have any protective leave. Um, and so then the parent would get fired from their job. And that causes huge negative downstream effects in terms of the child's health and development. I have one family I'm thinking of in particular where they actually ended up losing their apartment. Uh, the mother became very depressed. The child was having failure to thrive. Um, so if we can prevent those preventable infections, I think there's a lot of good beyond just, of course, not having an acute illness. Yeah, it's a great answer, Lucy. I, I'd add to that, I think um, a couple things. One is increased hygiene would be great. I mean, if people wash their hands more, um, uh, I think that would be useful. And if they avoided coming to work or going to school and they're ill, that would be great. We raise the bar on that. I think social interaction among children is critical and they're going to need to go back and have that and go to sports and go to the classroom and all of those things. And there will be more infections because of that. Um, but the best way to prevent the kinds of infections that kill kids are immunizations. And so I think um, I, I look at the whole 360 of that question, and I think it's, as Lucy answered that piece, but immunization rates are going to be critical. We need to really focus on that coming out of the pandemic because they've dropped. And it's going to be normal for kids to get back and have physical contact, and that's probably okay, and there will be more viral infections because of it. And then the last question for Dr. Marcial, uh, can you comment on doc undocumented families with very little benefits or none at all? What's, what is the effect of COVID-19 on them and, and how can we help them? Oh, that's a very important, very difficult to answer question. Unfortunately, we really don't have a lot of good ways to help um, undocumented families um, because of the restrictive policies that are in place right now. Um, you know, at Boston Medical Center, um, and probably at Connecticut Children's, I'm less familiar. We have a lot of programs. So we have like a food pantry. We've been doing an outreach program where people can get grocery gift cards from us, formula, diapers, all sorts of things. Um, but these are really limited supports um, and families need to be able to um, work. They need to be able to file their taxes. They need to be able to get food stamps, um, get supportive housing. Um, so we really need better policy in place, unfortunately. Thank you again. Thank you both. Uh, really outstanding presentation. A couple of reminders uh, for Grand Rounds on October 27th. Uh, Rachel Zofnes, uh, who's from Brown University, will be giving a talk on bridging the gap between medicine and psychology and pediatric pain. That's hosted by Dr. Bill Zimsky. And then next week, uh, we have uh, John back uh, with the COVID update, and then Dr. Jessica Hollenbach, who's going to speak about asthma and the effects of COVID and asthma 
in our community. Uh, with that, I want to thank you for participating. Thank you for joining us for your great questions. Uh, once again, a, a great uh, session uh, for all of us to be very informative. And uh, take, take care, be safe, enjoy the weekend, and we'll see you again on Tuesday. Bye-bye.